Hear the word of God from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, 1 through 5, verses 1 through 5, and chapters 2, 4b through 9, located on pages 1 and 2 in the Pew Bible. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, the first day. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth, and the water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil." The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And now would you please pray with me. And now, O oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. We easily forget that a point of view is precisely what it says, a view from a point. Change the point from which the view is seen, and what you see often changes as well. Now, it strikes me that when it comes to the points of view that we hold on pretty much anything, but especially subjects like politics, religion, economics, and ethics, we're much better at identifying the view that we hold than the point from which we hold it. Maybe if we paid a little more attention to the underlying assumptions, experiences, biases, and beliefs that influence the ways in which we see the world, then maybe what we see would change. Isn't it true that two people can be in exactly the same place, but their point of view can be vastly different? As those two lines of verse by Frederick Langridge put it so well, Two men look out through the same bars. One sees the mud and one the stars. Which reminds me of a great story about Sherlock Holmes and Watson who were out camping. 
in the middle of the night, Holmes woke Watson and said, Watson, what do you see? Watson opened his eyes and said, uh, stars, Mr. Holmes, I see stars. And what, my dear Watson, does that mean? Asked Holmes. Watson replied, well, astronomically, it means that we are looking back into the distant past. Meteorologically, it means that there are no clouds, and so tomorrow it should be sunny. And theologically, it means that we are just tiny specks in the vast expanse of the universe. No, Watson, you idiot, thundered Holmes. Someone's stolen our tent. (laughs) What do we fail to see because of the assumptions we bring to the things we observe? What do we fail to see because our point of view is too rigid, too static, too narrow, too entrenched. This intriguing idea that our points of view are merely views from a point came alive for me recently in a thrilling and inspiring way. I was visiting the Dali Museum in St. Pete's. Now, I must admit that I've never really paid much attention to the art of Salvador Dali. Much of it is quite weird. And I thought that it wasn't really my cup of tea but turns out I was completely wrong. That point of view came from a place of almost complete ignorance. And at the museum, I discovered to my great surprise and considerable delight that his art spoke to me in a captivating way, especially one of his paintings. It's a portrait of his wife, Gala, looking out through a window onto the Mediterranean Sea. The window through which she is looking is akin to a keyhole, so that her gaze is like a key that unlocks a whole new world of perspective. The particular perspective that Dali gives to her in the painting is the same as that of God, As she sees the head of the crucified Christ upon the cross, as God would have seen it looking down from heaven above. In fact, it's the same perspective that's given to us as the onlookers of the painting. It's like Dali is inviting us to look and to see as God does. I was utterly fascinated. And then the tour guide said the strangest thing. She said that this is actually a portrait of Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) I mean, I thought she was completely nuts. Abraham Lincoln, you've got to be kidding me. So I checked the title of the painting. And sure enough, it's called Gala Contemplating the Mediterranean Sea which at 20 meters becomes the portrait of Abraham Lincoln. So I stepped back from the painting as the guide invited us to do further and further and further away, trying to see it. And suddenly I did. The face of Abraham Lincoln as clear as day, I kid you not, 
it was quite extraordinary. I'd been looking at him all the time and never knew it until I had retreated to a sufficient distance until I found a new point where to stand where his face suddenly came into vibrant focus and view. Now, if you've seen the painting, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, this may be difficult to follow, for which I apologize. But rather than put an image of the painting up on the screen and risk spoiling the experience for you, if you haven't yet seen it, I'll just leave the description at that. But if you haven't seen the painting for yourself yet, I'd really encourage you to visit the Dali Museum and do so. The trip across to St. Pete's and the cost of admission is well worth it. At least that's my point of view. (laughs) I share that experience because I think it can be helpful for us as we unpack our theme today, which is open to reason. You see, reason is the capacity to think. It's the capacity to exercise our intellectual competencies, our God-given intellectual competencies, in order to, to understand the world in fuller ways. Of all the wondrous things in God's good creation, the firing of neurons in the human brain through which independent human thought is possible is arguably the most miraculous. From it has flowed things like art, music, mathematics, science, literature, poetry, and theology. It is also arguably the most dangerous, for from it have come things like racism, Warfare and torture, lethal injections and atomic bombs, not to mention reality TV and country music. (laughs) I'm kidding about the country music. But why on earth would God take such a risk? Could it be that in creating us in God's own image and likeness, God was looking for partners in the great project of creation that would share God's own mind, or at least the tiniest part of what makes God's mind what it is with its capacity for endless creativity? If so, then the way in which we use this most sacred gift, the gift of human thought and reason, could not be of greater consequence. And that's where Salvador Dali's painting can help us. Could it be that through this eccentric Spanish-slash-American painter with with a wacky imagination, could it be that he is opening a keyhole for us through which we can actually begin to experience something of God's perspective of the world. A perspective that is able to see in different ways 
and to hold those different points of view together at the same time. To see Gala contemplating the Mediterranean and the face of Abraham Lincoln and to recognize them as being essentially one and the same. This is what human reason seeks to do. To look at something and to dare to say that it can be known in a different way. To look at something and to dare to declare that the frontiers of understanding can be expanded. To open the possibility of fresh perspectives. To move beyond, beyond the confines of stale and calcified convictions. The church doesn't have the greatest track record of being open to this kind of thinking. When Nicolaus Copernicus posited his theory in the 16th century that the earth revolves around the sun and not the other way around, he was challenging an entire worldview. And then when Galileo Galilei gazed through his telescope half a century later, and dared to offer empirical evidence in support of Copernicus's theory, the church branded him a heretic. They said his ideas were an affront to God. They even quoted the Bible. What they forgot, of course, is that the Bible itself invites us into this kind of bold and imaginative thinking through the exercising of our reason. In fact, that's how the Bible starts off. In the very opening chapters, it presents us with different and in many ways contradictory accounts of creation. We heard a short portion of each account just a little earlier. And they tell the story quite differently from different points of view. So which one is true? Well, if that's your question, chances are you're going to miss out on God's perspective. It's a bit like asking whether creation or evolution is true, or whether Jesus was human or divine, or whether it's science or faith that can unlock the mysteries and meaning of the universe. The mind of God invites us into a different way of seeing beyond the dualistic thinking of either or that makes up so much of the perspectives that we commonly hold. How fascinating that that's how the Bible begins. And how liberating that we can be released of the impossible burden of being forced to believe in ways that violate our intellect, while at the same time being stretched and challenged to hold what we cannot yet understand. So if you're someone who thinks that you have to check your brain at the door when you walk into church, there's good news. God wants all of you, including that marvelous mind of yours that God imagined in the first place. And if you're somebody who feels that you'll be betraying your faith 
if you dare to consider different ways of understanding any of the biblical things that you've always been taught, be it the creation of the world or Adam and Eve or the exodus from Egypt or the virgin birth or even the resurrection of Jesus. Well, there's good news. You see, God really is bigger than any particular point of view or any idea that we might hold. And so when we leave behind a particular perspective, a particular interpretation, we find that beyond it, there's still more of God waiting to be discovered. But that's a topic for our further exploration next week. And so today, let me close by simply inviting you to consider a different perspective of this place we call home. You see, when I was at school, I learned, as I'm sure you did, that there are nine planets in our solar system. You remember it? Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. But then, as recently as 2005, scientists discovered a tenth planet in our solar system, a little larger than Pluto. They nicknamed it Xena, though it has subsequently been renamed Eris. On the furthest point of its elliptical orbit around the sun, it is three times further away from the sun than what Pluto is. Imagine that. Our solar system suddenly got three times bigger than what we thought it to be. Which means that our home is suddenly a lot more roomier than we previously imagined. Isn't that great? But then the discovery of Zeno sparked a fierce debate in the astronomical world as to what constitutes a true planet and how that should be defined. You know how these, what these astrophysicists are like. In the end, in 2006, it was decided that both Zeno and Pluto would be downgraded to the status of dwarf planets, which means... Disturbing though this may seem, that whatever Miss Sullivan may have said in the third grade, there are in fact now just eight planets in our solar system, not nine. I know that that feels weird, but just deal with it. <laughs> Except that just this month, a paper was published in an international journal of astronomy positing the theory of two Earth-sized planets in the distant reaches of our solar system 500 times further away from the sun than the Earth. It's mind-blowing. And while all of that is going on in the heavens up there, particle physicists are boldly venturing into the subatomic world that undergirds everything that is. 
where they are discovering ever-increasing levels of complexity and ever-smaller subatomic particles like pions and quarks and neutrinos and bosons and gravitons. It sounds like fiction from a Flash Gordon comic. And way down below in that mysterious subatomic world, there is a seemingly chaotic randomness about it all that defies all logic, at least the logic that we are currently capable of. How utterly marvelous, how utterly humbling that this is what undergirds everything that is. All of which is to say, That when we allow our very best human intellectual endeavors to draw us out on journeys of bold and risky discovery, we find that the place we call home is both higher and deeper than we ever possibly imagined. And for this, may all praise and glory be given to God, whose creative genius conceived it all, and who lovingly invites us to enter into the mystery of this world and to gaze with eyes of wonder from all of God's many points of view. Amen.